Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the Disney MGM Studios. That's what it was way back when it opened in 1989. Michael Eisner called it at the time, it's the Hollywood that never was, but always will be. It's sort of this nostalgic look at Hollywood, the way we kind of envisioned it growing up, though it never really was that, and it, it, it's really different, but it sort of, you sort of capture it in the imagination in a way. And as you think about what Walt Disney had in mind, Michael Eisner did point out that Walt Disney had an idea to create a studio tour of his uh, studio that he had there in Burbank. The problem was the studio was much too small to host crowds. He saw that Universal and some of the other bigger studios had crowds that came through, tours that came through, and they would show them how they made movies and made cartoons and whatever other things they were doing. And he would have liked to have done the same thing, but he just didn't have the space. And he died long before he ever had the space to be able to make that happen. So Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, they resurrected that idea and came up with the Disney studios that they wanted to create in Florida because they had the size there. They thought it would be really interesting. Now, the backstory is that originally when they were thinking about the whole idea for Epcot, remember it was the community, right? It was this community aspect. They were thinking about having some sort of an animation studio type thing there that would be a pavilion in the park. So sort of in that future world concept, you might have something that would be uh, something that evoked the idea of Hollywood. And you would have the studio and you could make productions there. But Michael Eisner took one look at it and realized it wasn't big enough. That wasn't going to be able to house all their dreams. So they realized that they needed to create another gate, another park. So they, they took the time to start thinking about creating a third theme park that was originally supposed to be a working movie studio that you could go and visit and take in and do some things. But it grew into much, much more when they started thinking about what they really wanted it to do. And so they thought bigger and grander and started thinking about how to make it a real working movie studio while still allowing for the amusement part of it. So it would become a full day adventure rather than just a half day adventure. You could go in there and experience movie making, but also kind of experience some attractions and some other fun shows and things that they might do. The one problem that Disney had was that there was other entities out there who had a lot of movies arguably more memorable movies than Disney ever had. Not that Disney had any bad movies or anything that people didn't remember, but just that there were many more memorable movies. They set about talking to several of the movie companies. So they talked to, uh, they talked to Universal. I believe they talked to 20th Century Fox. I think they talked to uh, Paramount. And then they wound up talking to MGM. Now, MGM had a very large volume of work that they had. And so... Disney thought, wow, if we could license that media so that we could show some of that and, and, and encapsulate it as part of what we're doing in the Hollywood studios, it would be really neat. So they could actually 
kind of rebrand themselves as a partnership with MGM and be able to use some of that copyrighted work throughout the park. And they could kind of sell it more as a broader movie studio. So it was bigger than just their Disney lineup. They could have more things that they were doing. So it was really clever. It was actually kind of smart, kind of savvy to do that. So they signed a deal with MGM that effectively allowed them to use the movies and use the movie rights within their theme park to be able to show something and, and talk about movies and movie making and whatnot. So that turned out to be a really valuable thing. Michael Eisner made a statement early on that it was in perpetuity, which of course it wasn't. It was only a 20-year license agreement that they had. But that's okay. It allowed them to start thinking about what they wanted to do. And then they worked with Lucasfilm to license out a couple of things that Lucas had. They already had the license with him for Star Tours, so they created a Star Tours in the Hollywood studios. They also talked to him about creating, creating something more with Indiana Jones. So that was, that was an easy to do as well. But then the MGM franchise became much broader. You could talk about movies and movie making and talk about very specific movies. For example, Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz, two very famous films that everyone knew. And as they were thinking about how to build the great movie ride, those two became central themes to what they wanted to do in the ride. There were some other things too, but those were the two critical ones that they came up with right off the bat. So the idea was there to create the Disney MGM Studios, branding it that way. Everyone wins, they pay a licensing fee to MGM. They get the ability to have the movies in there embedded in the studio. It's a win for everybody. Meanwhile, up the street, you had Universal had announced plans to put in a theme park and movie studio just 10 miles away from Walt Disney World. Now, the timing on it is kind of interesting because I think Universal actually announced their plans to build just before Michael Eisner said they were going to build something. So there was this like arms race of a sort where each of them wanted to build a better working movie studio slash theme park than the other. And so they kind of got into this business of trying to outdo each other. And each of them had public statements and they were kind of putting signs up on each, you know, near each other's property to say ours is better, come see ours. It, it just kind of went back and forth. So it was kind of interesting. So Universal had their own films that they could use in their library and they already had a Universal Studios that was in California. So they could kind of replicate a lot of the same things that were there and bring them over to Florida. So they were in a better position to start, arguably, just because they've already done this. But Disney was undeterred. They managed to build something that was kind of unique. It was a little different than what Universal was doing because it was a little more immersive in the storytelling and in the theme park sense where you had some more things that you could do. So they each created them. They opened kind of near the same time. Now you may be asking yourself too, why did they both come to Florida? Why were they interested in that? The tourist dollars and creating the working movie studio, why was that important? And the answer lies in the fact that at that time, Florida wanted to attract the movie business. So Florida had a large fund set aside and some tax breaks that they were going to offer to production companies. So they could, you could produce movies in Florida for cheaper than you could in California. That was the sales pitch. Realizing there was a tax advantage and there was money to be made, both Universal and Disney said, we're doing that. We're going to put real working movie studios and we're going to make some of that. We're going to take in some of that money. So that's where that comes from. So Disney built out their theme park and they had the real working movie studio part of it, I believe they had four sound stages to start with. And the four sound stages were set up in a way where they were configurable and they could do different things with them and they could be used for various uh, shows and productions. They were used for a, a few things, but nothing ever really significant. Nothing that was ever really groundbreaking. No movies that you'd remember, no TV shows that you'd really remember. They filmed some scenes there. Like always, there were people who came to Disney World and did their 
you know, one episode of their show or an episode arc of their show where they were there for a couple of days and they were able to use the facilities and that was helpful, but it wasn't really anything more than that. Universal, on the other hand, they went one up. They actually worked with uh, Nickelodeon to create something called Double Dare, which was sort of a game show with the slime and Mark Summers hosted it. And they produced the entire show. The run of that show was 10 years or more. And they produced the entire thing there at Universal Studios in Florida. So it became this big draw and it was wildly popular. The slime was really a big factor there, but it was, it was wildly popular and people loved it. And the reason that they were able to get that show to come there was simply because they offered the studios for free to Nickelodeon to produce the show and they made some money on the sides of it. But it was very clever. You know, this is a way to get themselves on the map and arguably Universal did a better job of getting themselves on the map. And I think they started with like six sound stages and they built out to 12 and then the uh, Islands of Adventure took over most of them uh, when they finally went back to it. So uh, they went out of that business as well. But it's intriguing to think about how the business went and how these companies worked with each other or worked against each other in a way to build something and really push each other to build something greater. And you could argue that they're still doing that. A few times over the years when Disney had an idea that died off, Universal hired some of the Imagineers to come to work for them to go with that same idea. So it's a kind of a interesting relationship the two parks have with each other, that they poach people all the time when something creative comes along. J.K. Rowling comes to Disney and says, I'd like to sell you the Harry Potter rights so you could put, put something in your park. And Disney says, no thanks. Universal buys it and they t it takes off like gangbusters and they do something that Disney never even thought of. So now Disney has to scramble and they wind up buying Pandora from uh, James Cameron and uh, 20th Century Fox so that they can put that there. And it's kind of crazy, but that's the way this goes. So anyway, Disney built their uh, MGM Studios and it was really kind of interesting the way they built it out. They had the real working studio part where you had the movies being made, presumably, in the back part. You moved all your costuming from wherever it was in the northern part of the property near the Magic Kingdom. All the costumes that were made for all of the cast members and whatever, they were moved to this area where we're in the studios now when they were making the, the same things, but now they could make them for movies as well. They hired a bunch of prop masters and other people to come in. And they created the New York Street to show you what the sets look like so they could redress those and film cities, New York or other, uh, along the way. They created all these different uh, things to have there where they would show you how to, you know, how they make some of the movies. They had the immersive things like the superstar television where you could appear in a classic TV show as a, it was a random draw from the audience. It was kind of, kind of fun and quirky. You had the monster sound show. It was the sound show there. And uh, you were, would go on and learn how to create sounds for movies and do these things. And again, it was audience participation driven where they'd bring people in and they'd uh, go and do it so they could learn how it works. You go back to some of the editing bays, they would let you in there. You could walk through the sound stages and they had some sp uh, spaces in there that were up above where you could look down at the production of whatever was going on at that time. It was really pretty cool. And you saw all these different things. And there was, oh, then there was the backlot tour too, where you could go around and they'd show you how some of this stuff was done. They'd give you the firsthand account, like, like Catastrophe Canyon, where you'd go through and they'd actually put on a show for you as though you were in this canyon. It was a three-dimensional looking thing, but it was really pretty cool and it felt like you were in this earthquake. And it was kind of neat. It was very clever. And they did a lot of things like that, where they'd show you something and kind of show you how it was made. Then they'd take you around the back of it and they'd show you that it was just this steel and fiberglass frame that was giving you this mountain effect. And they had gas pipes and water pipes and whatever that made it look real. And it was very clever. I mean, it was just really well thought out the way they did that. So that way you felt like you were part of something. 
So it was really pretty neat. They did a nice job of kind of showing you that. And then there was the, uh, the other couple of shows and other things that were going on. So, you know, it was a really working movie studio with some fun elements to it. When you went on the great movie ride, you were immersed in these movies. So as I mentioned before, the two movies that stood out were The Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz. They wanted to make sure they captured several moments from each of those movies to give you a feeling for what the movie was like. So you're in the movie, right? They used audio animatronics, other effects to make you feel like you were in the movie. It was really pretty cool. Then they did some other things with uh, some horror type movies and a couple of things with gangsters and a couple of things with westerns. And they put on a whole show where your driver would go off and be part of the show and then would disappear from it and somebody else would come and take over the car that you were in, this vehicle you were in. It was very, very clever. And uh, it was well thought out and I thought that was really neat the way they did it. It really was unique and very immersive and you felt like you were doing something very different. It wasn't the typical sort of, you go on a ride, you see the movies. They were immersing you in it. And along the way, one of the things that they had a big decision about was to include something that would be sci-fi oriented. They had the rights to Alien. The, uh, the movie with Sigourney Weaver. The movie was rated R, and the movie was scary in the 1970s. By today's standards, it's still sort of thrilling. I don't know if it's so scary anymore, but it's defi- it, definitely had a, it definitely was kind of scary. And they had this moment where they had to decide if they wanted to put Alien there. Now remember, they had gotten the rights to this movie back when they were thinking about Alien Encounter in the Magic Kingdom. They were originally going to have it be this alien from the movie Alien. But they changed their mind along the way. It may have been a licensing thing that, exa- that happened exactly or you know, the timing of it didn't work out. But anyway, once they had the rights to it, they decided that maybe they'd put it in the studios. And they did. And the studios was an interesting choice for it. And it was arguably, they did, and they did a nice job of taking you through the movie Alien. You felt like you were on board the Nostromo with Sigourney Weaver, and this alien was attacking from different locations. It was very, very well done. But they had a lot of discussion about whether that was the right thing to do in a family-friendly park. So what they traded off was, they would tell you up front, if you were scared, here's what to look out for. That was the kind of the trade-off, especially with little kids. But it was always kind of neat. It was just neat that they thought that through and put it in there. So they had all these things that fit together, and they told you a story, and it was kind of interesting. Now, something else happened shortly after the park opened. It was probably about 1990, maybe 1991. MGM decided to sue Disney for the agreement that they had, because they were saying that Disney was misusing the agreement in the way that they were marketing and merchandising, and they were making money on things that were their intellectual property. In the meantime, MGM also decided that they were going to build an MGM park in Las Vegas at their MGM Grand Hotel that would be a part studio, part theme park, where people could come in and see something about the MGM brand. Disney didn't like that very much because they figured people would get confused with the Disney MGM Studios versus the MGM Park, which was in Las Vegas, so Disney countersued. They went back and forth for a while, and ultimately a judge ruled that Disney could continue to operate the theme park the way they were. They had to kind of tone down their merchandising. They couldn't distribute any of the films with the MGM logo, so they couldn't sell any of of the stuff like that. They couldn't uh, merchandise anything that was MGM branded that way. It could be Disney MGM Studios, but they couldn't do anything MGM. And MGM could continue to run their theme park, and they had to title them correctly, so it had to be called the Disney slash MGM Studios theme park. And that was the MGM park. So... It worked out in a way. I guess everyone came away happy because they made some money and everyone worked out. 
the MGM park only lasted for, I think it was two years, and then it closed up because they just didn't get the business they wanted. And meanwhile, the Disney park continued on for about 20 years, exactly as it was. Well, maybe not exactly, but continued on that way. And it was really pretty neat. Over the years, they had so many different activities that were so themed to having these different uh, things going on. So it would be like every day they'd have like a celebrity guest who would come down and go down Hollywood Boulevard in a sort of a cavalcade. They had like a, um, uh, it was like a parade with a, they were the grand marshal of, and it was really just them in a car. And they would go down and they would wave to the fans and, you know, they would go sign a few autographs. And uh, early on, they would put their hands in cement. After a while, they stopped doing that. It was kind of neat. You know, so every day it was a different celebrity. Sometimes it was the same celebrity for two days in a row, but every day it was somebody else. And it was kind of neat. There was a large number of people that came through there. And Disney kept trying to make the whole idea of the working movie studio work. But by about the 10th year, the state had rescinded all of its tax breaks, all of its offers, all of its incentives to bring movie production to Florida. They just weren't doing that anymore. So Disney had a choice to make. Did they still want to be a working movie studio or did they want to move on? They chose to move on. So things started to change at the park because they didn't want to be a working movie studio. Sure, you could still create a production there, but you weren't going to focus on that anymore. So those elements started to change. They, they started to change in about 2008 or so, maybe a little before that, but that would be about what happened there. And then when the 20th year came around of this agreement with MGM, they were losing the licensing deal with MGM. I think they talked about renewing, but I don't think either side was particularly interested in keeping it up because there was no benefit to either side, really. It, since it wasn't a real working movie studio, you weren't trying to brand it in some way. Since uh, MGM wasn't really getting the royalties they wanted for what was there, neither side really wanted to keep it going. So Disney took away the MGM name and then decided to just call it Disney Studios for a while while they thought about a new name, and then they came up with Disney's Hollywood Studios. So what you started to see then was all these licensing things, all these different things that were around there that were, that were related to the MGM movies, they all started to disappear from the parks. And then finally, at some point, the great movie ride had to change. They didn't have a license to show you any more about the aliens, the Wizard of Oz, or Singing in the Rain. So they had to make a change to it. They were at least going to have to retheme it, retool it, change up something that was in there. It could be lightly themed in a similar vein. Maybe they could pick another movie that they could license. Maybe it could be a Disney film. But they decided instead they were just going to close it. And what they did was they kept it going for as long as they could. Then they decided to make it Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which is a complete shift from what it was. You're not immersed in the movie anymore. You're kind of seeing a silly cartoon about Mickey and Minnie. Not terrible, but nothing to write home about. So everything kind of changed. And the whole thing, just the specter of it changed. They used to do really cool things with different tie-ins when they had Star Wars weekends. One of the neatest things they ever did that was so much fun. They bring in all these people to dress, cosplay, have some fun. And it was really pretty neat. And they did all these Star Wars themes, themed things for four or five weekends a year. And it was really cool. And then they decided they didn't want to do that anymore either because they wanted to focus on their theme park. They didn't want to focus on these extra things like this. And besides, they were already in the market to build this Star Wars themed land. They were already thinking about this because at that point they had made the purchase of the uh, entirety of 20th Century Fox properties. So you can see where the shift is happening here, right? Because now they own somebody else's property, they could start to shift to that. And 
all of the Star Wars things were in that property. So it was easy to just make the shift and go, hey, we're going to build a Star Wars themed land and just go ahead and cut away all the other stuff. And that way we don't have to have the Star Wars weekends. We don't have to have these extra activities. We can just do what we want to do. And that's what it came down to. So never forget, in a way, it's always about money, right? This is about how can they make the most money? What could they do? What makes it interesting? What makes it compelling? And so they created this Disney's Hollywood Studios in the shadows of what used to be the Disney MGM Studios. The Disney MGM Studios, they had, a, they had an animation department. They actually created some films there. If I'm not mistaken, a lot of the popular animated films from the early to mid-1990s were all, or mostly, drawn there, colored there, made there. So these came out of that studio. So it really had some importance. It had some significance. And then at some point, they decided that that wasn't the business they wanted to be in anymore because the animation business was changing. And arguably, they're right. But they just did away with it. And that was the end of that. And so that entire animation studio area became something else. It had a meet and greet area and some other things and some very lightly themed, hey, we can teach you how to draw. And then for a while, it was all Star Wars themed because they wanted to start to get you in the, in the mode of thinking about Star Wars. And now, if I'm not mistaken, it hasn't reopened since the pandemic. So there's nothing, there's nothing to see there. So it's kind of interesting how this all evolved and everything sort of changed. And they keep trying to rethink and reconceptualize what they want to do with the park. And I see where they're going with it. It's a theme park now that sort of encapsulates sort of the studio movie thing, but not really. They don't teach you about the movies. They don't do anything interesting. It's a, it's a shift from where they were. Well, anyway, that's my story about the Disney MGM Studios and how we got to here. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to talk about plastics. Plastics are everywhere. They're in everything. And the problem with plastics is they're harmful to the environment. So I encourage you to be a good environmentalist, a good citizen, and try and use reusable products wherever possible. If you can take a refillable glass or jar instead of using a plastic water bottle, all the better. If you can just stop your consumption of plastics. And if you do have plastics and you do decide to use them, say you're out and you need to buy a water bottle or something, dispose of it properly. The problem is water bottles tend to find their way to the ocean and they tend to clog up things. So let me just share with you something that I found from Caltech Science. The how big is the plastic problem and how can we solve it? Plastic is incredibly useful in modern life, but the production and disposable of plastic generates greenhouse gases and hazardous waste. Plastic and chemicals it emits are building up on the land and in the oceans, lakes, rivers, and ice, air, and in the resulting damage to the human ecological health is currently poorly understood. Most plastic is not recyclable, and the vast majority does not biodegrade. Further, plastic products often break down into very small fragments called microplastics that can pollute ecosystems and harm organisms. How big is the plastic problem? Plastic is everywhere, from bags to single-use bottles and packages to car parts, pipes, and siding. Likewise, plastic waste is ubiquitous. It's been found, for example, in the Arctic sea ice, beer, farm soil, trout, and other wild freshwater fish, shrimp and other shellfish, songbirds and seabirds, human placentas, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, mid-oceanic atolls, sea caves, the air and rain, and national parks and wilderness areas. 
While the impact of plastic waste on sea life is well documented, scientists are just beginning to measure plastic of plastics effects on humans and human fertility, land ecosystems, and crops and other plants. The United States alone generated 35.7 million tons of plastic waste in 2018. Of that, 27 million tons were landfilled, 5.6 million tons incinerated, and 3 million tons, or 8.7%, may have been recycled. Some reports suggest that plastic scrap shipped abroad for recycling may instead up, end up in landfills and waterways. Researchers estimate that nearly 7,000 million tons of virgin plastic have been manufactured around the world as of 2015. Of that, 9% may have been recycled. 12% has been incinerated and the rest is in landfills still in use or in our environment. Globally, about one-fourth of the plastic waste is never collected. In less wealthy countries, waste plastic is sometimes burned in the open, releasing toxic chemicals into the air. What is plastic made of? The main ingredients in plastic come from oil and natural gas processing. Different molecules are used to make different types of plastic, giving them distinctive properties and chemical structures. Manufacturers also mix in additives to give specific products their desired qualities. These chemicals such as colorants, plasticizers, flame retardants, stabilizers, fillers, reinforcing fibers, and biocides sometimes contain hazardous substances, including lead, arsenic, and uh, cadmium components, as well as BPA. Caltech chemists and other colleagues are designing molecules and nanoscale catalytic devices that may make it possible to produce plastic from chemicals derived from carbon dioxide rather than from fossil fuels with the goal of reducing the climate impact on plastic manufacturing. How can plastic recycling improve? Many consumer plastic products are imprinted with triangular recyclable symbols, but only two kinds of plastic commonly end up recycled. Number one, PET or polyethylene terephthalate and number two, HDPE, or high-density polyethylene. Together, these account for a small fraction of all plastic waste. Plastics that are recyclable are typically downcycled rather than fully recycled. This means that they are turned into products of lesser value that cannot be recycled again. When plastic waste is turned into a more valuable product, such as clothing or shoes, that is called upcycling. Recycling results in a product of equivalent value that can be recycled multiple times. However, the number of times plastic can be effectively recycled is currently limited. Chemical recycling is an emerging method that chemists are trying to develop. It would break plastics down into their basic raw materials, sometimes through the use of customized enzymes, so that they can be remade and recycled an infinite number of times. Using similar approaches, polymers that are more difficult to re recycle could potentially be turned into biodegradable compounds and used in cleaning products. Because different types of plastics have varying properties, plastic products need to be stored before they can be recycled. Some packaging, usually used to keep food fresh, cannot be sorted or recycled because it's made from layers of different types of plastic. Scientists are working on solvents that could separate multi-layer packaging into component polymers, which would then be used to, instead of new plastic. Others are making molecules that would allow multiple types of polymers to mix and still create viable recycled materials. So it's just something to consider when you think about our environment and your use of plastics. All of us, we all use plastics. Consider how you, what you buy and where your stuff comes from. Think about the environmental considerations and think about our own future. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, 
I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 